everybody, welcome back to Enjoying the Journey. I'm Rob. I wonder, is your heart a little heavy today? I know mine is. I was putting things on the calendar and all of a sudden I was writing some things down. I've got some speaking engagements coming up at some churches. And a lot of times when I go to these speaking engagements, my son, who has been traveling with me for the last five years, my 18-year-old son, or as my wife and I would say, our 18-year-old son, goes along with me. And I was marking down some dates that are coming up in July, and I realized that I wrote one down, and it will be the last time he is going with me because he has joined the National Guard, and come July 18, he ships out. And so as I was writing that on the calendar today, all of a sudden my heart got a little heavy and was like, oh, God, I know the day is coming. I know you have plans for him. I know it's the next steps for him. But, oh, God, I don't know if I'm ready to see him go. And I love when he goes with me on those Sunday mornings. It's just so fun to travel in the car as he puts his headphones in and plays on his phone and doesn't talk to me at all. No, I'm just kidding. We have pretty good conversations every now and then. Now he does put his headphones in and play on his phone, but it's also fun when we get to have those those conversations. And uh, so my heart's a, a little heavy this morning. I wonder if yours may be for, for other reasons, but I want you to know that even in those moments, God still has you. God still has a plan for you as well and that it will be okay. Uh, as we get going on enjoying the journey today, even though my heart's a little heavy with preparing for Jagger to leave, I am excited about my conversation with York Moore. I had so much fun learning about York, his ministry, and what he calls three conversions. I've known York from a distance. I've never had the privilege of actually having a conversation with him and learning more about what God has done in and through his life. And I think you're really going to get something out of today's episode. So if you would, please welcome York Moore to Enjoying the Journey. It was great to have him. We're excited today. Welcome to Enjoying the Journey. We have a new friend with us named York Moore. Some of you maybe have heard of him, some of you haven't, but York, can you uh, start us off and just tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're up to? For sure. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm the national evangelist for a, a college ministry called InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. Been with them for 26 years, preaching the gospel, training the church, equipping evangelists, living the dream. I mean, there's really no greater honor than to speak well of God's son, Jesus, introducing people to him. And over the years, I've had a lot of twists and turns, little nuances. So I consider myself an abolitionist, a, re a revivalist, and uh, so very, very in much invested in the work of social justice, but then also personal revival and uh, you know, engaging culture with uh, you know, societal change and those kinds of things. I've helped to co-found a uh, coalition of nearly 100 organizations called the Every Campus Coalition which is a coalition that's seeking God together for revival by instigating revival through catalyzing prayer and gospel movements across the country. So that's a 30,000 foot view of kind of who I am and what I do. I'm married, been married uh, coming up close to 25 years, um, 22 of those happy years, a couple scattered, uh, you know, struggles as is uh, anybody who's long married. And we have three wonderful kids. I have a 21 year old who's getting ready to graduate from the greatest university in America, the University of Michigan. And, uh, <laughs> I'll let you have that. <laughs> thank you. Just once, right? Just once. Just and then I have once. an 18 year old who uh, ran off and joined the uh, Circuit Riders, which is a phenomenal evangelistic ministry that we do a lot of partnership with. And 
And then I have an 11 year old who was adopted. So she's much younger than the other two. And she's graduating from sixth grade Friday. So I'm paying for college and I'm paying for uh, elementary uh, private school at the same time. So checks and donations can be sent to me at PO Box. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what's that address? <laughs> That's awesome. And, and I, I didn't catch, are the older two male, female? Yeah, the, my son is 21, and then okay. I have an 18-year-old daughter and an 11-year-old daughter. Wow, that's that's great. You uh, you are very similar to us. I have an 18-year-old son who just graduated high school, and then I have a 15-year-old daughter and a 13-year-old daughter. And so I am I'm looking forward to when the 15-year-old becomes an 18-year-old because I'm hoping our relationship grows and develops a little bit more beyond a 15-year-old daughter. Mm -hmm. Those days are coming, my friend. Yeah. <laughs> right at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> oh, oh, there is something. And, and so I understand that that your faith story starts out as an atheist, not a believer. Can can you walk us through that and what that journey looked like? Yeah, the short version is, you know, I was raised as an atheist. My parents were followers of a philosopher named Ayn Rand. She was the founder of a philosophy called Objectivism, a very, very harsh atheistic philosophy. In fact, my first name, I go by R. York Moore. My first name is Rand. I'm named after this philosopher. And um, we were homeschooled, not for religious reasons, because we were atheists, obviously, but my parents, through the philosophy of Rand, thought that uh, public education would corrupt um, a person and prevent them from reaching their highest goals and, you know, these kinds of things. And so we were homeschooled in the seventies, which is not like being homeschooled in the 2020s. I mean, it's a, it was borderline illegal. So they were always being threatened, uh, with, um, you know, by the state to have us taken away. We fell into homelessness for a while living on and off the streets of Detroit. And, um, when we finally got out of homelessness, we wound up in a city called Inkster which is almost worse than being homeless. I mean, drugs, uh, toxic fumes, there were 21 homicides within a one mile radius of the home that I wow. lived in at the time uh, when I graduated high school. When we were growing up though, we had a sign on the front of our house when we weren't homeless that read the Moors, the atheists. And we had a barrel for burning Bibles and other religious propaganda as my parents referred to it growing up. And so just uh, never really um, thought about God until one day I was uh, six years old. I was in the bathtub taking a bath with Rubber Ducky and Battleship. And all of a sudden I heard this voice hmm. and no one had to tell me, you know, I think that we're created by a creator. We're hardwired to know the voice of God. And when we hear it, we know that it's our creator. And so I'm all of a sudden I'm having this conversation with this voice at the age of six in the bathtub. And it's going on for what I think is quite some time, you know, who knows back, back then it might've been five minutes, but my parents come in. And they say, hey, Rand York, uh, who, who are you talking to? And say, well, I'm, I'm talking to God. And they say, oh, we, we thought that uh, we, we thought we told you that there is no God. In fact, that people who believe in God, they're weak intellectually and they, they just pretend there's a God to help them through life like a mental crutch. And I said, oh, there's no God. They said, no, there's no God. So they walked out of the bathroom and, you know, I looked back up at the ceiling and I said, well, God, my parents say you don't exist. So I got to stop talking to you now. Mm. You know, and that began the first day of the next 14 years of my life, living as if there is no God. And I'm here to tell you, you can only go, you can only live that way for so long. Mm -hmm. You know, when you begin to live as if there is no God, you, you come up against God's pursuing power. You come up against the hardships and limitations of life. 
And all of those things happened. You know, my dad got uh, involved with drugs and uh, we went back into homelessness. And, you know, I wound up in high school, um, you know, doing all the things you would think, early promiscuity and, and, and alcohol, never drugs because drugs destroyed my family. But I was living the life, so to speak. And I remember waking up at the end of, uh, you know, just a binger, multi-day, you know, drunken, you know, haze at the end of my 10th grade year, averaging a straight D average. And I thought, boy, you know, if something doesn't change, I'm going to wind up on the streets again, or like my dad on drugs or in prison. And none of those options seemed real exciting. And so I decided to make a change in the flesh. And I'm going to tell you, you don't need Jesus to change your life. You can make a decision. You can, you know, you just need Jesus to actually have eternal change and eternal life. Sure. So I made a change in the flesh and cut my hair and, you know, applied myself and I managed to get a straight A uh, average in the last two years. Now, for the mathematicians who are listening, straight D's, two years, straight A's, two years gives you not very good, not very much. And certainly not enough to go to the greatest university in America, the University of Michigan. Go <laughs> <laughs> so, nice. you know, I applied to, uh, to, to Michigan and I got, of course, I got rejected. And mm -hmm. uh, my, my parents, despite the homelessness and the drugs, they were highly educated. They were teachers. They had master's degrees. And my mom intercepted this rejection letter from Michigan. And she literally, true story, she literally drove up to the admissions office and she made a case at the window of the admissions office about why they should change their mind and let me in. And she prevailed, right? Which just like says something about my mom. Uh, and they let me in a, under a probationary, probationary, proba I mean, if I burped Rob one time in class, I was gonna be out on my ear. Wow. And when I went to college, I fell in love with the whole, the whole, the whole deal, you know, but I didn't go to college like most people to meet a, a great girl or guy to get a good job. As an atheist, I went to college to discover, could there be meaning in a world without God? Is it possible to have meaning if there's, if this is all there is. And so I applied myself, <clears throat> you know, very deeply. I became an honor student in, in, the, uh, in the philosophy department and in the psychology department where I focused on research methodologies and stats. And at the end of th three years, <clears throat> I had done all this research and I was turning my honors thesis in, 60 page, you know, thesis. And basically it was my conclusion that there is no God. And when we die, we cease to exist. And the best we can hope for is to live a life of pleasure and meaningless pursuit of acquisition and power and these kinds of things. Yeah. And um, I turned this paper into my mentor. <clears throat> I'll never forget walking back to my car. It was a you know cold December day and a blast of Michigan air swept the parking lot. And with that blast of cold air, I heard the voice of God for a second time. And the Holy Spirit asked me this question. He said, if you really believe everything that you've written in this paper, why do anything at all? Because I was a striver, Rob. I was a mountain climber, a ladder climber. It was never enough. I always had to get the, the best grades, the, you know, the best girls, get the most money. And I was a striver. In some ways, I still struggle with that as well, even to this day. But I didn't have an answer. You know, why apply yourself in a life that actually has no meaning? And so I decided, well, you know, maybe, maybe I should kill myself. So it was a calculated decision. And so before I thought, you know, maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there is a God. And so I began to interview people. Now, I had read the Bhagavad Gita and the Upanishads, and I've read the Quran. And I knew that out of all of the possible deities, the only God that I would have a problem with would be Jesus, because the Bible says it's appointed unto us once to die and then to face judgment. And that didn't sound very good. But I knew that if Buddha or, or Krishna were the gods, 
then I could have lots of opportunities. If Allah was the one true God, I could work myself out of hell one day, but Jesus was going to be the only problem. So I narrowed down the list and I decided to focus on interviewing Christians and pastors, which boy was a mistake. Every time I sit down with a Christian, I'd ask her or him, you know, why they believe in God and the, the nonsense that would come out of their mouths would just confirm my atheism. I sat down with a pastor friend. I had a pastor friend because I went to a church because the girls were easier to get along with in the church environment than they were in the secular world, if you know what I mean. And yep. so I had this pastor friend, Dave, I sat down and said, Dave, I said, how do you know God exists? And he begins this whole, you know, lecture on, well, you know, we don't really know if the Bible is God's word or if Jesus was really born of a virgin. How can we know such things? And I thought to myself, well, here's a guy who's based his entire life on Christian faith, and yet he's thrown out the very foundation of his faith. This guy has doesn't know, know what he's talking about. And so he gave me a stack of books, and I went on my way very dissatisfied. And so the last thing that I decided to do is, well, maybe none of these people speak for God. Maybe God speaks for himself. And so I would cross my arms every day, and I'd say, Dear Allah, Buddha, Krishna, he, she, it, whoever you may be, show me that you exist. Now, I was looking for the angel Moroni to show up at the front door. Mm. I was looking for an algorithm that would prove scientifically something. And after several weeks of praying, of reading, of interviewing, nothing. And it all came to a head. December 24th, 1989, it shows you how old I am. I'm watching The Little Mermaid, not on stream, but live in the theater. You know, and here I am as an atheist in a Christian nation on the verge of a national Christian holiday with 400 people watching this ridiculous cartoon at the time. I thought it was ridiculous. And I said, here it is. This is the great epiphany. It doesn't matter if you're a saint or sinner. It doesn't matter what your faith background is. All we have is entertainment, sex, drugs, the acquisition of material power. It's all meaningless. It's all pointless. And so that night in the movie theater, I decided I'd, I'd kill myself. So I got my fiance home and got my little red sports car going about 90 miles an hour down the freeway. And my plan was to smash it on the viaduct near my home where I lived. And as I got that twisted sense of courage uh, to kill myself, fully intending to do it, aiming my car at the viaduct, the presence and power of Jesus flooded that vehicle. Now, I wouldn't have used those words at the time, Rob, but at the time, something really, truly powerful, and I would say miraculous happened in that moment. I was the original Jesus take the wheel story. I should be getting royalties. I keep checking the mailbox. <laughs> the checks aren't coming. God miraculously saved my life that night. Now, I woke up the next morning in this world. I'll hand it back to you. I woke up that next morning, and um, it still wasn't enough to keep me from killing myself. All I knew is that something happened. It got me home that night, and I woke up the next morning in a cold sweat. And for the first time in my life, I prayed a prayer of desperation. And I said, God, if that was you last night, I need to know right now, because I'm still going to kill myself. So I walked into the next room. I have two older brothers who were also at the University of Michigan. I might have mentioned my love of that campus before. And <laughs> they were home for Christmas, and they had brought a big picture frame of the poem, Footprints in the Sand. I had read this poem before. I didn't think much of it. And Hallmark sentimentality, you know, it's a, a simple story about how God cares for us. Even when we're unaware of his presence, he provides for us. He carries us during times of difficulty. And, um, you know, this time, however, as I'm reading this, I hear the voice of God for a third time. And he says three things to me. He says, number one, I do exist. Number two, I'm the reason why you exist. Now, those would have been the only two data points I needed as a philosopher. Everything else is a derivative, right? And so but the third thing blew me away. He said, number three, I'm the one who kept you from killing yourself last night, which meant God knew who I was. He knew my name. 
and he cared enough to involve himself in my story. Me, living at the edge of nowhere in the midst of all these murders and toxic fumes with a broken life and an arrogant heart, God stepped into my story. And I just wept. I mean, in tears, I ran into the room and I said, God, if you can take my life and make anything out of it from this day forward, I'm going to live for you. And I got right on the phone because I had this deep sense that I had wronged the world. I had wronged my fraternity brothers. My nickname in my fraternity was Satan because I persecuted Christians. I had wronged all these women that I had been with. I had wronged my family. And I spent the whole Christmas day that day, you know, this is back in the day when the phone was attached to the wall. And so I sat by the wall all Christmas day and I called person after person to tell them that I was following. Now you gotta get the picture. Here's Satan calling you on Christmas morning. And on the other end, you say, hey, guess what? I'm living for God, I'm living for God. You know, so it was, it was quite an experience. But that night I read uh, all the books that that pastor friend gave to me. They, I picked the smallest one because I was between breaks and I was tired of reading. And I picked the smallest one. It was a little book called God is Never Absent. And I read it cover to cover that night, Rob, and it told me about sin and how I was separated from God because of sin, how God sent his son Jesus to earth to live a sinless life, to pay the penalty for my sins, everything that I've done and left undone on the cross. He suffered and bled and died to provide the cure for my sin and how he rose again. And I could have a relationship with him because he was alive. He was a living God, unlike these other gods. Yeah. And if I could confess him as my Lord, I could have new life. And then I'm reading this book. I mean, it was the same voice in the bathtub, the same voice outside the University of Michigan, the same voice at Christmas morning that confirmed that this is the, this is the true message. And I slipped down on my knees and I said, God, come into my life and be the savior of my life. Forgive me of my sin. And I, I'm committing myself to following you from this day forward. So that's my, my first conversion, as I like to refer to it as. That is unbelievable. I mean, absolutely unbelievable how God took your life, spared your life, and then put you on, on mission. I mean, you have been a voice for years and years and years with the gospel. As you had mentioned earlier in your story, I know you mentioned your fiance at the time. Was Is that your wife today? No, I was involved with this woman for about seven years. And she, you know, Rob, it never occurred to me that people, there could be such a thing as cultural Christians. She was a cultural, she was a church going girl. It just doesn't seem like a good use of your time. If there's no God, just do whatever you want, you know, live right. and eat and drink today for tomorrow we die. So no, I unfortunately had to break her heart. And, yeah. and uh, when I got serious about Jesus, even though she was a church going gal, she just couldn't understand it. Why I was so fanatical. That's the she referred to it as fanaticism. I was a fanatical, you know, so we had to end that relationship. Ah, and then God brought this wife of who you have today into your life. It's yeah, yeah, pretty, uh, pretty close on the heels of that. Uh, I met her, you know, maybe just a couple of years after that, and she was seven years younger than me. And, mm. and uh, yeah, we've been married again, it's coming up on 25 years. And uh, she's the love of my life. And I couldn't imagine life without her. Oh, that's that's awesome. Is she in ministry with you? No, she works full time as a project manager for a disaster restoration company. You, know, you have a fire, a flood at your house. Yep. She shows up and does all the adjustments and gets the guys in to fix the stuff. And so and then in her spare time, she's uh, running this new what I call an Instagram farm. She calls it a hobby farm. I think it's just a photo op for her uh, for farming with the goats and the chickens and the ducks and the bees. She does it all here. And that's her new great passion is uh, is developing this hobby farm that we just bought right as COVID was breaking out. Oh, that's that's 
That's awesome. I mean, like I said, off air, I'm a farm kid at heart, but it was, it was mostly land farming, things like that. My dad did have hogs back in the day. And before he decided to become a pastor, he had sat my brother and I down. I was only what, nine, nine years old at the time. And he was going to bring cattle onto the yard the next year. And that was going to be our job. And we had to take care of them. I was all excited about it. And then I guess God got a hold of his heart and he became a pastor. Mm-hmm. I still tease him today. I'm like, Dad, do you understand farmland's worth a whole lot more money than being a pastor? <laughs> but, That's for sure. Especially now, everybody wants to buy these farms because of COVID. Nobody wants to have neighbors anymore. <laughs> right. Exactly. Oh, that's crazy. But we were also talking about this uh, abolitionist idea as well. And so you had the conversion of becoming a Christian, Jesus taking over your heart. And then you you talk about that in your bio. And then also this uh, revival mm-hmm. idea, not idea, revival is huge. But but can you, yeah, um, bring us into that as well? Because as as I said earlier, I know God has been using you amazingly you partner with some friends of ours in ministry i i have been a witness of of what you guys are doing and what what god is using you for but yeah can you walk us into that a little bit well you know i i was just immediately when i became a christian was so excited to tell everybody about jesus what he had done in my life and so i didn't even know it was called evangelism i was just doing it Hmm. you know you meet jesus and you want to tell everybody about him and I was confused because so many Christians weren't weren't evangelizing. I'm like, well, what else are you going to do? You know, so, you know, I started a chapter of Campus Crusade for Christ. Now it's called Crew. I started a campus ministry in my church. I started another ministry in my home. <clears throat> so I'm kind of a serial ministry entrepreneur and just went all in on evangelism, you know, on the streets, uh, evangelizing, preaching. And for about 10 years, I was convinced that Jesus was the greatest person and that the gospel was the greatest idea that the world could ever have. And so I dedicated my life to evangelizing and there's, you know, I I haven't stepped back from that. I am continuing to devote myself to the gospel. I believe that it's the hope of the world. Jesus is the hope of the world. Um, But I would say my second conversion came about 10 years after I became a Christian. I was at a conference called Urbana, which is our organization's missions conference, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. And uh, we had about 22,000 people in the stadium that night. And I was listening to a man with a funny buzz cut talk about a problem that I had never heard of. And as Gary Haugen, the founder of the International Justice Mission, began to talk about modern day slavery about little girls like joy t locked away for eight nine year eight you know eight nine years of their early young lives being raped for pay and uh, it just broke my heart and i thought to myself well either this guy's a fantastical liar or this is the greatest humanitarian crisis on the face of the earth i'm going to find out which is true and so i left that uh, auditorium i called my wife and i said hey everything's about the change. If what this guy is saying is true, we can't live the life that we're living right now. We have to do something about this. And so I came home and I discovered that it, it was just the tip of the iceberg. The human trafficking was just a prolific, uh, ubiquitous problem. Uh, forced labor, forced prostitution, indentured servitude. I mean, you name it, it's, a call, it's across the globe. Some places are so bad, they don't even have the category. It's just called human defilement because humans are still considered chattel. And so, you know, I I thought to myself, what can I do? I'm an evangelist. I'm a speaker. I'm an author. What can I do? 
And so what I started doing in the early days, Rob, is I, I started bringing these organizations, these NGOs onto secular college campuses, Hagar International, the International Justice Mission, World Vision, my friend David Batstone at the Not For Sale campaign, Compassion International, organizations that together kind of give us a picture of what it looks like to holistically engage communities and marginalized people who are suffering, you know, the uh, or could potentially suffer as modern day slaves. And in the early days, we were bringing them to campus. We were helping them tell their story. And I mean, this is in 2000, right? So like, okay. I, I remember literally getting up to speak on human trafficking in L LA once. And this uh, adult, um, you know, porn star, she gets up and she starts berating me, just saying, I'm lying, I'm making it up. Human trafficking is a myth. And in the early days, you know, it was not, it was not received well. I mean, it's not like today where people know there's modern day slavery. I mean, people really fought us hard in those early days. And what ended up happening is that these, these events became so popular that we, we developed campaigns out of them and we did them all over the country. We, we worked with the U.S. House, with state attorney general's offices all across the country. We worked with uh, corporations like Delta and Macy's and Hilton. We worked with uh, all kinds of people, uh, federal judges, and we you know, every time we would come into a market to do one of these campaigns, I had three objectives. Number one, preach the gospel in a relevant way to connect the issue of social justice with the human heart. Number two, raise real money and real assets to accelerate the frontline work for NGO partners. Uh, and number three, to mobilize the community in an enduring way so that when the campaign left, the work continued. And we did these campaigns all over the country. Some of them were $500,000 million campaigns which you know you can spend a lot more at that uh, at a festival or things like that, but these were these were strategic gatherings where we were mobilizing the seven mountains, if you're familiar with that concept. You know, people from law and academia and sports and entertainment, and we were bringing people together around this common good problem. And you know, just the the attention that we got in those early years, the Boston Globe picked us up, NPR picked us up. I mean, it was just electric how these things took off. And, um, you know, for 15 years, we ran these campaigns. They were called the price of life. And we did them from coast to coast. We even did it at the Ohio State University because Buckeyes need Jesus probably much more. Than <laughs> and, uh, but I'll tell you that you got to keep your Wolverine card in your pocket there. They really have a hard time with Wolverines down there. No, but right. What we saw were thousands and thousands of students praying to receive Jesus. We started foundations and for-profit enterprises. We launched the careers of dozens and dozens of students into full-time anti-trafficking work across the country. We helped state lawmakers pass some of the very, very first anti-trafficking laws in their states. Um, you know, in Ohio and Michigan, we were instrumental in the early days of helping to give lawmakers a voice to this problem. Uh, you know, it was just an incredible time and during that time, I, would, I, I call it my second conversion, and here's why, Rob. When we come to faith in Jesus, we know one thing. We know that Jesus has saved us from many, many things, not only from the bad things to come, he saved us to the good things that are now, so we can live full, spirit-filled lives. But when we look at a passage like Revelation you know, chapter 11, where it says, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever, and we begin to take a look back at what God is actually after, God isn't just after the hearts and souls of individuals. He's after the whole thing. Kings and kingdoms, nations, tribes, tongues, languages, cultures, ecosystems. At the end of the age, 
everything will come under subjection to the feet of Jesus. So I call it my second conversion because through my anti-trafficking work, my theology of God's great kingdom, my theology of what God is after his great mission were elevated to a place where I think it, it actually matches the, the biblical vision of what God is after in our world. Wow, that is great. And and I mean, that that is just unbelievable. And then it moves into revival yeah. where we talked about this third conversion of revival and take us, take us down that road a little bit. Yeah. Well, let me say this before I talk about the third conversion. I, I hope I'm well done with conversions because <laughs> you know, they sound exciting, but boy, are they disruptive. They change your whole life. And uh, I thought I would end up doing the anti-trafficking work for the rest of my life. It was very, very gratifying. I didn't want to change. I, you know, it was firing on all cylinders. People were excited about it in terms of funding it and, we would go out and we would raise all the money so that we could host the campaign and then we would give everything away and it was just a very very exciting time i just thought it would go on mm. you know when you're in a season of life that's highly gratifying and it's rewarding you just assume well this is how it's going to be and you're going to go from one thing to the next but in 2015 i got a word from the lord and this wasn't the first time rob that i had heard this in 1999 i had a, a very vivid dream god doesn't speak to me often through dreams but you know, maybe two or three times in my life. And I had this dream in 1999 that revival was coming to America and that I was going to be, you know, used to play some small, you know, it wasn't going to start with me. And so it wasn't some Joseph dream where I had the coat of many colors, although that would have been, that would have been great. <laughs> but in, in 2015, I got this word from the Lord and I'm just a Baptist guy. I'm not a Pentecostal. And uh, yeah. so I don't traffic in this kind of language often. So when I say I got a word from the Lord, it's not like, I get them often, but this was so visceral. It was, it was like another conversion moment. And um, I just really sensed that revival was coming to the American College campus. Mm. And as a result, I thought, well, if that's true, you know, I really got to, I got to make a change. I got to really kind of focus all of my energy on being available for revival. And so I began to wind down the Price of Life campaigns. We did our last two. It would typically take about 18 months to build out these campaigns. And so we had to <clears throat> wind down the last two, but one of my friends, good friend of mine is a guy named Nick Hall. I've been running with him for over 15 years. And he was dreaming about this gathering on the Washington mall. Yeah. He wanted to have a million people gather in the name of Jesus. And I said, man, if revival was going to break out anywhere, it would be a gathering like that. And so I said, Nick, count me in. And so, <clears throat> you know, I just kind of threw in with him and <clears throat> invested in that campaign I, you know, helped onboard some of the partners and worked with some of the good friends that I have there at Pulse with Nick. And the day came, Rob, and it was 90 degrees, high humidity. I love that kind of weather. And we're out there and, you know, 300,000. We didn't have a million, but 300,000. I don't know if you've ever seen 300,000 people. I have never seen that many people. Oh. And they're just lining the, the Washington yeah. Monument area. We were there. Yeah. I was there. Now, here's the thing. Though, yeah, and so were we. We were there. You were there? <laughs> we brought we brought two hundred and thirty high school kids with us. Come on, praise the Lord! Four, four charter buses and yeah. So when I heard about your guys's, you know, yours and Nick's vision for together two thousand sixteen, I was all in. Yeah. And well, yeah, yeah. So I remember that heat. It was insane. This, is this was all Nick's dream and vision. I was. I consider myself just a doorman. I mean, you know, Nick is just a great man of God. But I'll tell you. He put me on the bill as one of the speakers, right? So like, here's one thing about me. I'm not famous, you know, and, uh, but I am more famous than most people realize because every concert, every conference, every Christian event that you go to, 
you got your Priscilla Shires and you got your Francis Chans and you scroll down the list and you got Matt Chandler and you got, and you got all the famous people. Yep. And you, if you scroll all the way down to the bottom of the website, I'm always there. You know where? And more. That's right. <laughs> I'm the greatest and more speaker you'll ever you'll ever see. That's awesome. And so he put me on the bill and I was excited. I was going to preach on revival. Revival's coming to America. Generation's going to rise up in the name of Christ. We're going to see revival in the land and you know, I wore my best shirt and I'm literally walking to the podium about 20 feet away from the podium, 300,000 people. And the stage manager gets a message in his ear. Tim Tebow's coming off, mm. you know, um, at, at the time Nabil hadn't passed away. He was there. It was, I was in the pantheon of like, who's who? And here's my moment yep. in the sun. And I'm gravitating toward the podium and the stage manager gets a message in his ear. You're not going on. No one's going on. The whole thing's getting shut down and you were there and so you know that the yep. heat the heat stroke and the impending tornado warning yep. you know we were we were shut down in the middle of the program and i was literally the next guy walking to the platform i was on the platform walking to the microphone and they shut us down and so i was devastated the other thing that was happening in my life is that i had just been given so i'm the national evangelist which is a an honorary title in intervarsity my hr title i'm the executive director for catalytic partnerships which is a new role. It's never existed in our 80 year history. And before I get on the plane to DC, my boss, because we were looking for our next president at the time. And he says to me, now York, don't get out to out there DC and start making a lot of promises and get people excited about this, that and the other. He knows how I, I work, obviously. So he said, don't go making partnerships because we don't know who our next president president's going to be and whether she or he is going to want to do partnerships. Sure. So I didn't have a license to operate this new job that I had. I didn't get to speak. I was very upset. I, I left my price of life campaigns to throw in with this and revival didn't come. A tornado came. I thought this right. is just a disaster. And so I said, you know, I, I need a fresh word from the Lord. And so I went on a prayer walk and I uh, got in the elevator and the elevator opened up in the lobby. They got 300,000 people in town. And here's this guy sitting by himself right next to the elevator. And I look over at him and the spirit of God says, I want you to go and talk to this guy. Hmm. So I walk over to him and I say, hey, what are you doing here at Together? And they said, oh, I work for a ministry called Crew. We used to be called Campus Crusade for Christ. And so, yeah, I think I might have heard of them. I didn't tell them that I started the Campus Crusade for Christ chapter. I also didn't mention, Rob, the fact that I had just spoken to him and 6,000 of his buddies at their national staff conference. Obviously, <laughs> I had a big impact on this guy. I'm the greatest <laughs> and more speaker that you'll ever hear. He didn't know who I was. I didn't mention any of that. I just said, okay, what are, what are you doing at uh, Crew? He says, well, I have a new job. I'm the new national director for strategic partnerships. I said, really? And my eyes got big. I said, what, what are you doing with that job? He said, I have no idea. I'm just asking the Holy Spirit to lead me. And I'm laughing, you know, and so I, find, I tell him what I just told you. And two weeks later, I fly down to Orlando where God and Mickey Mouse live. And God <laughs> is everywhere, but God is in a special place in Orlando. And I met with their executive vice president of collegiate ministry, Mark Gauthier. It's just a great man of God. And I sat down with Mark and I said this, because InterVarsity and Crew are the two largest collegiate ministries in America. And we've, we've had agreements in the past, but we've never had a partnership ever in our history. Mm. And so I sat down with Mark and I asked this question. I said, Mark, what's the one thing that our organizations could do that we could never do by ourselves? Now he did something incredible as a senior leader. He didn't answer the question. He said, you know, I don't know, but let's live into that question. So for seven months, we flew around in different configurations at the time. Then we had finally hired our president, who then reorganized and hired a new C-suite. And every time we would get together with crew to talk about this question, 
we would have more senior leaders at the university level. And uh, we prayed and we fasted and we listened to one another. We read the scriptures. And after seven months, we found ourselves in a little crummy hotel in uh, the Pittsburgh area. And uh, we, hear, we heard a clear word from the Lord. The Holy Spirit said, revival's coming. And we need to partner with one another in order to receive this gift from heaven. Now, here's the thing. We can't force God's hand. We can't strategize or budget or plan revival. But when revival comes and it's received by organizations, by Christian leaders, with a heart of unity, with a, a, a relationships of trust, a common vision, common language, common metrics, that's the kind of environment where revival can actually breed and spread instead of collapse in on itself. Yes. And as soon as we got this word from the Lord, we knew that it wasn't just a word for us. We knew it had to be a word for others as well. And so my counterpart and I, we, we got on planes and we flew all across the country for another seven months. Mm -hmm. And we sat down with presidents and executive teams at denominations and parachurch organizations and event organizations. And as we began to share this story and this vision for revival, something crazy happened. I mean, eight out of every 10 conversations we would have, the person would look across the table with a, just a confused look and they said, you, we wouldn't even have this meeting with you a year ago, six, six months ago, six weeks ago. Hmm. But we just had a powerful time of prayer where the Holy Spirit said revival's coming and we need to partner with others to see it through. We had a denomination call us and the leaders said, you know, we don't know much about every campus, but you know, we just had a powerful time of prayer in the streets of LA and God told us that we needed to partner with others because revival's coming. I mean, this was just incredible as this was breaking out. So we knew that we had something that was connected to God's heart for this moment in our generation. Hmm. <clears throat> so we said, well, what can we do? So the first thing that we decided to do is have a year of consecration and prayer. So at the beginning of 2019, in January, we committed ourselves to physically on-site prayer walking every single one of the 4,200 campuses in America. Now, the federal wow. government says there's 7,000, but their data is all wrong, and our data is really the good data. <laughs> and um, you know, we partnered with some, a fantastic organization. Scott Beck over at Glue has become a real friend to every campus, and we developed this interactive mapping system that we can run reports and data intelligence, ministry intelligence, and we've shared this with all of our nearly now 100 partners in every campus. And in 2019, we partnered with many organizations like the National Day of Prayer, Collegiate Day of Prayer, uh, you know, many aspects of the Southern Baptist Convention, Chi Alpha, Assemblies of God, other partners to prayer walk every campus in America. And uh, we got to about 3,600 campuses, literally, physically, on site. And these are substantial prayer walks. When you downloaded the app, it would take you about 20 to 30 minutes to do one of these prayer walks pastors showed up, boards showed up, moms rolling strollers rolled up. I mean, it was a, a, just an incredible campaign. And we got to 3,600 out of 4,200 and then COVID hit. And oh. We thought we can't give up now. We don't know how long this is going to go on. And so we developed a virtual experience to finish the last 600. And uh, in June of last year, about a year ago now, we, we crossed the finish line for the first time in history. We wow. prayer walked every single college campus in America. Wow. So I would I call this my third conversion because even though I've been invested as a student of revival, actually going for it with everything that I have and everything that I am, it has been a different experience. And believing that revival could could be something that happens in our lifetime in our generation, which is different from awakening. I have a whole lecture series on my YouTube uh, stream that's. Uh, you know looks at revival and awakening and you know we can talk about awakening if you'd like, but I think being close to this vision of revival 
has been a different journey. Mm. And people, they use the word differently and kind of where we're at right now with every campus as we've finished the prayer walking campaign now, we are building relationships with churches and denominations across the country because we believe, and I'm going to go on record here in the show, crew would say the same thing, that as great as the ministries of Young Life and Chi Alpha and the CCO and crew and InterVarsity and all the rest, I mean, every single one of them are all a part of every campus. We don't believe that we're going to get to every single unreached campus by doing more parachurch ministry. We believe that the future of college ministry is the church. And we're, we keep on going to the same 1,800 campuses, generation after generation, decade after decade. And there are about 2,200 campuses that have never been touched with the gospel. Can you believe it? Wow. Millions of students at their most open time of their life, as they're wrestling with ideas and faith, they have no gospel witness, no church group, no youth group, no invert, nothing. Not even a praying grandma down the street as far as we can figure out. And our dream is to see a gospel movement on every single one of those campuses that currently don't have a gospel ministry. And we believe that the local church is going to be the pivotal linchpin in getting us to those college campuses. And we don't think that once we get to the last campus and revival is going to fall out of the sky. And But we, what we do believe is that when revival comes, instead of the hard work of fishing, God is going to say, throw your net on this side, and there's going to be a great, great harvest. And we're going to see a move of God like we haven't seen in America in a hundred years. We believe that it's right around the corner and we're partnering with one another to instigate revival by catalyzing prayer and gospel movements across the country. It's absolutely amazing. We're hearing that in, in some of the same circles we run in as well. And partnership is a big, big word that you use. We believe in partnerships all the time. And like I said, going back to together 2016, that was a big thing, was partnering. I didn't make the bill as a speaker or anything else, but we were there because I believed that we needed to have students there. We needed students to understand what it looks like to have 300,000 people or a million people coming together saying, we want to see culture change. We want to see Jesus impact uh, the, the nation for that matter and around the world. And <clears throat> so it was so cool to be a part of that. And it, it does, the more conversations we have with great leaders such as yourself, it, it's coming. How soon is coming? I don't, I don't know, but I do believe that there is a hunger and uh, it's, it's, it's coming. And I just, uh, I appreciate your work. I appreciate you being the man of God that you are. I, I appreciate you being friends with Nick Hall and all those that are around him call it crazy visions because they're they're ginormous and they're they're out of this world and it's like wow god that's that's really really cool and as we mentioned we call this podcast enjoying the journey it sounds as though god continues to allow you to have a pretty incredible journey as you've uh, received him all those years ago to going into multiple conversions as we wrap things up today a couple things one we always like to ask our our guest this question if you could have anybody with you right now on your journey, who would it be? Yeah, well, let me first say to you, Rob, I appreciate you and I'm proud of you and the work that you're doing as well. And so you're a mobilizer and a gatherer and a visionary. And so bless you and the work that you're doing. You. you know, I'm kind of torn uh, with that question. And, uh, you know, I think of contemporaries. I love the innovation of people like Elon Musk and so I would love to ride with that guy. I mean, that, just to have 10 minutes with Elon would be like extraordinary. 
Um, that would be for different reasons. But I think in terms of this 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 road that I'm on with revival, mm-hmm. Charles Finney, a very controversial huh. figure, and uh, he's buried down in Overland, Ohio. And I visited his grave and his church, and he's he's just been a very influential person because he brought together evangelism, social justice, act, you know, uh, societal engagement, academic engagement. Mm. Uh, you know, he brought it all together. And, you know, there's a lot of criticism about how he ended and some of the decisions in terms of his methods. But I'll tell you what, here's a man of God who was used in just a powerful way, an unprecedented way in an age with no social media, very little, uh, you know, kind of the things that we have grown accustomed to in terms of mass communication and, and travel. And yet here's a man who impacted the entire world, quite literally, and he impacted the world. And um, if you read the stories and believe only half of what was written about Charles Finney, just the, the sense of presence and power as people repented simply by being in his proximity, you know, um, it's, all, it's all about Jesus. But the presence of Jesus in Charles Finney was so powerful, so overwhelming, that he had an immediate impact just by being in, in people's proximity. And then as an abolitionist, you know, bringing that, that together and integrating that into his mission was just a, I, I keep going back to him over and over again as a model. So Charles Finney for sure. Wow. And then as we wrap up, is there any nuggets you'd like to give our listeners today? Anything to have them hold on to? Yeah. You know, I think in these days where there's a lot of confusion, a lot of noise, it's easier to be swept away with deceptive philosophies and human traditions. It's easier than ever. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, Christian nationalism isn't the answer. Another political hero isn't the answer. You know, secularized social justice, it's not the answer. Listen, the only answer is Jesus Christ. And uh, when we think that it's Jesus plus, our gun rights or our masks or lack of masks or the church is just crazy. It's crazy town. And you read people's social media posts and you think that there's a whole different religion out there that's not based on the Bible. Where did that all come from? And I tell you, friend, as you're listening to this, put your hope in Christ. Look at Jesus. The things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Amen. York, thank you so much for being on today. I'm just excited about what God's doing with you and can't wait to continue to watch. And this Every Campus initiative, amen. Go after it. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in to the Enjoying the Journey podcast brought to you by Rise Ministries. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and to follow Rise Ministries on any of our social media channels. Thanks for listening.